Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I think the Western world has success completely wrong. You know, I think the assumptions about success are absolutely uh, upside down, backwards and wrong. I mean, for instance, the assumption that it is better to be wealthy than not wealthy, I think is not true. And I think, in fact, if you just look at, if you study it, what you'll find is generally speaking, those with, with less money, you know, uh, are happier than those with a lot of money. As long as, let me just say, as long as, you know, you have good shelter, enough to eat, enough to drink and, you know, right. Like, but if you get above a subsistence level, if you get to a point of comfort where you're comfortable and you're safe and you're eating, Money beyond that doesn't really add happiness. And a lot of money beyond that, I would say, not only doesn't add happiness, but also maybe starts to infringe on happiness because it causes people to focus on the wrong things, uh, chase the wrong things, and chase things that are intended to gratify the ego instead of things that are truly fulfilling. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Monty, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Hey, thanks so much. Great to be here, Shani. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I found out about your work by way of our mutual friend, Zach O'Bron. And when he told me that you were the co-CEO of Chipotle at one point, I thought, well, considering I eat Chipotle multiple times a week, I definitely want to talk to this guy. And then I saw what you've been up to and I thought, yeah, this is kind of a no-brainer. Uh, but before <laughs> well, thank we get you. into your work, uh, I want to start by asking what I think is a relevant question given uh, some of the subject matter of the book. And that is, what is one of the most important lessons that you learned from one or both of your parents that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you've ended up doing with your life? You know, I guess the one thing they both had, I guess, are you asking from each parent a different one? 
Either way, whatever you prefer. Okay, yeah, because what popped into my mind was this. You know, my parents were both fascinated by people, you know, and so, and and they just wanted, and you could see that they just wanted to learn, 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 learn from people. And my parents are both super bright. You know, my dad was a highly educated you know, Princeton, Harvard, Brown, one for each degree mm. type of thing and scientists and all that. But he had these brilliant people over to dinner. Uh, and my parents grew, uh, I grew up in Boulder, Colorado. And my parents were really into, I mean, in their lives, they had jobs. And my mom is sort of into say, a psychologist. And my dad is, is a, a PhD a, a professor of uh, histology, which is the study of cells and tissues at the medical school down at CU uh, Denver. But uh, but their passion on the side was spiritual development, spiritual growth, transactional analysis. You know, basically they were reading you know philosophical books and books like Carlos Castaneda and and books by you know Dalai Lama and you know Buddhism and Christianity, and they were just seekers, you know. And which is kind of, Boulder was kind of the perfect town for them. But they had all these people over for <laughs> <Yeah>. dinner, <laughs> and they had all these people over for dinner. I mean, I mean, really diverse group of people from all over the world: scientists, artists musicians. Um, and it was wonderful. And, and they, my mom was a great cook. Um, my dad was actually a good cook too. And they would make these dinners every single night, you know, we had a dinner and there were candles on the table ever, as I talk about in my book, every night dinner was a big deal. And a lot of times there'd be a guest or two, uh, usually just a guest or two. So it was intense, right? It was like this person was there and we were talking intensely with this person. And, and even as a young kid, I was expected to and my brother uh, was expected to, you know, participate, be in the conversation, be part of the dinner, not just kind of eating and, hey, can I go watch TV? You know, we were there the whole dinner. And yeah. so, you know, my parents' fascination with these people um, was really contagious. And I developed a fascination with just getting to know people. And oddly, and here's something I want to say, because I only figured this out literally in the last few months of my 54 years, I, you know. What I've just figured out recently is I'm not that interested in people's story. I'm, I'm actually interested in who they are. Now, my mother's really interested in people's stories. And the, and the way I found out that I'm not interested in people's stories, my mom was always telling me, oh, and then this guy, I know this guy, and then I met this guy, it was this wife who came from me. I'm like, okay, I don't, I, I can't keep up with this. But when I'm <laughs> sitting with, but when I'm sitting with a human being, I'm fascinated by who they are. Not, we're, not, not their story so much. I'm fascinated who the, who's sitting in front of me right then. And, and, and then I can be, I can become very interested in their story based on how they came to be the person who is sitting in front of me right now. But it's sort of interesting. I, so I guess I've learned a huge appreciation for people from my parents to answer your question more directly and a fascination of people and a desire to understand them. Um, and then just recently, I guess I've, I've realized that what I really am interested in is, is who they are right at the moment, right in front of me. Yeah. You know, so one thing I, I wonder, you know, uh, my dad's a college professor as well. My sister is, was a chief anesthesiology resident at Yale. My, you know, one of my best friends is always says, he's like, your sister is every Indian parent's dream come true. And I said, well, that would be <laughs> every Indian parent's nightmare come true. Uh, but uh, <laughs> oh, that's funny. one of the things I wonder, you know, with a dad who had accomplished so much, I mean, obviously being, you know, the co-CEO of Chipotle is no, n nothing to like balk at, but when you were young, did you ever feel sort of this pressure to live up to such a high standard? Because I mean, the reason I started with that question is you had this quote in the book where you say the downside of these interactions with my father was that I felt a need to constantly earn his love, attention and affection and still suffer with difficulties believing I'm worthwhile or valuable unless I earn it through the approval and appreciation of others. Yeah. And to me, that is such a bizarre paradox, given what you've accomplished with your life. 
Yeah, well, thank you uh, for saying I've accomplished a lot. That's that's a real compliment. I appreciate that. You know, I think the the problem is that you know basically our psyche is largely set, or at least uh, many of our habits are set as very young children. And um, you know, with with my dad, you know, I he was brilliant, really bright, and I mean, literally knew Latin and knew the base of every word. And every, so he kind of seemed to speak every language because he could sort of decode them through the the root words, and it was just fascinating. And so every question I'd ask him, when he would answer, he would give an incredible answer that was fascinating and deep and rich and filled with knowledge, and I loved it. But and so I kept asking him questions. Um, but my dad was a in some ways, a bit introverted. You know, he needed a lot of alone time. He played instruments alone in a room. You know, he'd sit there in a room and play harmonica, or play the fiddle, or the banjo, or the mandolin, and um, and or listen to music. And you know, he needed some downtime. And I'm, I'm not really like that. I'm pretty outgoing. And as a kid, I wasn't pretty outgoing. I was sort of excruciatingly outgoing, maybe. And and I asked my dad questions like like a like a jackhammer, good, 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 you know, just one after just lighting one off another, like a chain smoker, and. Um, and it was too much for him, to be honest. And, uh, it wore him out and I could see that it wore him out and that hurt. But instead of experiencing it as hurt at that point, I sort of do, I did what every kid does in the face of some adversity. They adapt, you know, and what I did is I adapted in a way to try to please him and try to make him feel like a guru uh, who would want to answer my questions, you know? So I would show him such reverence and respect. And, you know, I, the way I came at him was really critical because if I came at him asking questions in a rough way, he would close down. And he even said to me once, like, you're coming at me like a goddamn lawyer. Okay. Just give me a minute. You know? And I was like, I mean, he's, and that was, and if my brother heard that, he would laugh because he'd say, Oh, yep, that's exactly how he said it. You know? And, and my dad hated lawyers, you know, it's kind of funny. I became one, isn't it? Well, yeah. oh well. Um, I guess we, I guess we, some, some people and myself go headlong into challenges. So I went headlong into the thing that my dad hated, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so he, he, he'd sort of accused me of cross-examining him and I was like, no, no. I, and so then instead of, so I'd, I'd learn ways of sort of approaching him, uh, delicately or in a way that he might find really, um, acceptable and, and comfortable. And so he'd answer my questions. And I think that because in part because of that, but also I'm sure for other reasons, I became very, very, very accommodative, you know, maybe too accommodative in life. I'm always looking to accommodate everyone at all times and, <laughs> and sometimes to the detriment of, of my own psyche. But uh, so that's probably, I think I, I, I see that as one of the places where that shortcoming came from. Yeah. I mean, so this need for parental validation, uh, I, I wonder, do you think that we ever actually get over it? Because no. you know, I came to this realization <laughs> that my dad, Absolutely you know, never. despite being a college professor, doesn't read my books. He has not, he, he doesn't read my, he doesn't read period. So I finally stopped taking offense to that. Um, he doesn't listen to the podcast. And it's funny because, you know, he can relate to my sister and he validates what she does because he understands it. Whereas I have a career that just you know, it's like, okay, good. You're, you're able to pay rent and you're surviving. Whereas, you know, in, in the Indian culture, there's nothing more noble you can do than becoming a doctor. Um, right, right, right. Absolutely. And so I wonder, like, you know, if you know that we're never going to get over that, how do you, how do people make their peace with that? Because I, I remember talking to my roommate the other day. He said, yeah, he's like, I think you got to come to terms with the fact you're never going to get the validation that you are seeking from your parents. Well, yeah, I think that's true. And, and uh, I think the problem, yeah, you never get over it. I'm, I'm convinced of that. Um, I've worked on it really hard. I've, uh, I, you never get over it. I think what you do learn to do is, is live with it and become comfortable with the discomfort, if you will. Um, and so, um, yeah, I've worked and worked and worked to try to get over it. Uh, I've seen psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, you know, I've talked to everyone who will listen. Um, I've, I've tried to achieve 
great things. Um, and but then what I've noticed is when I achieve something, let's just say in law school, you know, um, I, after my final exams the first year, I thought I flunked out and I even tried to withdraw from school and everything. I think I talk about that in my book, unless I cut that out, I forget. But anyway, I ended up getting these really good grades. And I remember when I got when I when I got my uh, uh, report card back or whatever you call it, um, my grades back. I looked at it and the grades were exceptional, really, really high. I was in the top 10% of my class. This is after I thought I failed out. I failed all the exams. And so I was like, yay. You know, I felt this rush of excitement and glee and glory and happiness for three minutes. And after three minutes, I thought I, I became disappointed and I thought, oh God, if I tried harder, I could have done better. You know? So what I found is that, um, you know, success or achieving, you know, quote unquote, impressive things does nothing to advance my self image. And, uh, and, 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 and so, but what I realized is I like doing stuff. I like trying hard. I like trying to do things well for the sake of it, you know, for the sake of it, it's fun to feel like you're accomplishing something. It's fun to feel like you're helping someone. It's fun to feel like you're, you know, explaining something to someone in a way that's helpful to them. It's, it's fun to lead a company in a way that you feel really helps the people in the company to become the best version of themselves. And so, I do believe that, uh, you know, those things that have, that, that I have become successful at, I have enjoyed the journey, which led to the thing that people now call success. Okay. But I don't really relish in the actual part that's called success, you know? So was it, you know, Hey Monty, how does it feel having been that, you know, how does it, how does it doesn't it make you feel great? You were CEO of Chipotle. Well, I felt great doing the work for 13 years, which looking back is now called being CEO of Chipotle. It was wonderful. And am I proud that I had the job? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I am. I, you know, sure. It was really cool. I loved it. I had fun. It was, but what I'm most proud of is that I was able to do some good for people. And what made it worth it was the journey, you know, not actually the, the sort of report card, if you will. So in the future of law school, after I got good grades the first semester, then I started trying because I was like, for the sake of, it was fun trying. It was fun feeling like I'm learning the material. It was fun feeling like I was on top of it. And then my grades got, you know, even better, but I never really found the grades other than for a fleeting moment to be the reward that paid off all of the effort. What was really fun was the effort. You see what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, my Indian parents pretty much, my roommate was asking me, he's like, did you get straight A's in high school? I was like, when you live with Indian parents, that's basically just an expectation to live in their house. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right. That's right. not negotiable. But, uh, you know, and it's funny because there's, a, there's this joke, like, I mean, every Indian kid has this story of hearing about a non-Indian kid at school who gets paid, you know, $5 for every A and then you come home and, you know, your dad basically says, you get a roof over your head and a meal, this negotiation is over. And exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The, but the funny thing is, to your point, I realized that was something that ended up being invaluable later in life because it taught me the benefits of intrinsic motivation. And I realized it was never about the grade. It was teaching you to do something so that you could be capable of it. And, you know, I was talking to my roommate about, um, you know, wanting to grow the company to the point where we could sell it. I said, you know, for a while, it was about sort of, a you know, the validation from people who thought I would amount to nothing, you know, parental validation. And I, you know, I said, you know what, at this point, it's about proving to myself that I can do something that big. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, and, 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 you know, and even proving to yourself, I think, again, when you prove it to yourself, let's, the, let's say, you know, you want to arrive at X place, you know, climb. I, I'm, right now, I'm thinking, actually, what's going through my mind is that fellow, his name is, is it Alex Honnold, the guy who climbed uh, El yeah. Capitan with yeah. no ropes? I, so I watched, yeah. that, I watched that film and, you know, and, and listen, he's, he's, 
a lunatic. And I mean that in the yeah. most respectful way. You know what I mean? It's like, I mean totally. it with all respect. And I think if I met him and I haven't met him, unfortunately, but if I met him, I'm sure I would find that he was a lunatic and fascinating, you know? And if mm-hmm. I asked him, are you a lunatic? He'd probably say, well, yeah, of course I'm a lunatic, you know? But anyway, um, uh, so if you ever heard this, I hope you would take it as a compliment. But anyway, I, you know, I watched that movie, you know, I think it was called Don Wall or something like that. And yeah. where he climbed up that thing. And I, I was, and I was literally on the edge of my seat with my fingers gripping. I was like so nervous that I was exhausted when it was over. But when he got to the <laughs> top of that, you know what I mean? And, uh, and I watched yeah. it with my son, we were both sitting there just totally uncomfortable. And yet we fascinated. Anyway, he gets to the oh. top of that wall where every moment he should have died for about, I think it was like three hours and 55 minutes it took him. And he gets to the very top and, you know, there's this kind of, I, I forget whether he pumped his fist or he was like, yes, or had, you know, looked at the sky with glee. And I was like, yep, I know that feeling. And that's over now. Now it's over. Because yeah. then your brain mm-hmm. starts going, okay, now what? And in his case, well, he climbed, you know, maybe the baddest ass piece of rock on the planet. And and so I sort of, I, I felt this glee and and this sort of sense of, tears in my eyes of, of glory for what he had accomplished. But I also felt compassion because I know that after accomplishing something like that, you know, you know, your, your mind and your, and especially your ego will instantly tell you, okay, that's done. And your credit f- goes away for it. And now you, your mind starts thinking, what do I do now? What do I do now? What do I do now? Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of the analysts. Um, when I was at Chipotle, you've got, you know, you talk to analysts all the time who are your, basically informing the shareholders as to whether they should buy or sell the stock. And so one of the chief, uh, one of the things you got to do as an officer of a company or CEO anyway, is talk to analysts a lot and uh, talk to them about the company, the, perform- the, the performance, how you're doing, um, your vision, so forth. And, you know, it's funny, we always said like, you know, you're only as good as your latest result, you know, and, and the mm. moment you turn in a great result, they say, hey, great quarter. And then they ask questions about the next quarter. And, and, <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and I'll tell you, great quarter, they, that's how long, if they even say great quarter, and we got a lot of people saying great quarter, which is very much appreciated, but they'd say, hey, uh, okay, Monty, great quarter. And then period, right? And then the yeah. rest was an inquisition about what, what are you going to do for me next? You know, and if the answer is you're not going to do anything for me next, well, they'd recommend so, to sell the stock and then your stock goes down type of thing. So yeah. I think the ego is the same way as the analyst, right? The ego is your internal analyst. The ego is saying, okay, great. You climbed the fucking wall. Great. Throw your hands up for a minute. Good. Pump your fist. Great. Okay. Okay. Now what? Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? Now what are you going to do? It's not good enough. you know. And so um, I think a lot of us who are very, very driven are sometimes driven by demons. You know, it's not being driven is, you know, I think generally seen in Western culture as a good thing, but it's not, it's, it's not good or bad. I would say it's difficult, you know, and mm-hmm. it's, and it's, it, it will lead to rewarding outcomes. But rewarding in what way? Well, uh, you know, nothing satisfies the ego, right? The ego's, by definition, is a, an internal um, structure that cannot be satisfied ever, period. Mm-hmm. Not by anyone. There's no one in the world who's ever satisfied their ego. So if you're working in part for your ego or to satisfy your ego, it never, ever, ever will be satisfied by any human being anywhere in the world at any time ever. And, and, you know, that's why you see so many successful people who are essentially miserable, you know, so many quote successful end of quotes, people who are miserable. And, uh, and, you know, and so, and, and, you know, you see it with, you know, the guy who you can see it with almost everyone who they become wealthy, they buy a material object, they become more wealthy, they buy a bigger material object, and they buy a bigger house and a bigger jet and a bigger boat. And, they, and, and it's bigger, 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 
you know, and then you, you find out if you get to know these people that, you know, they're basically dissatisfied, right? They're finding some reason to be dissatisfied. And that's because they're so often so associated with ego. So I think what's really the name of the game, sort of in my mind, sort of spiritually, if you want to really grow, it's to understand and get to know when your ego is the thing leading you. Understand and get to know your ego so you can see it. And once you can see yeah. your ego, you know, that which is seeing your ego is not ego. Right. Because you can't that because it kind of you can see you're standing back to look at it and witness it. And once you witness it, that which is witnessing it is, of course, something different than the ego. And that's yourself. That's what's real. That's your sort of essential nature. And so if you can really tune in uh, and understand, you know, I guess, you know, if you if you read a lot of books about Buddhism and so forth, there's this sort of underlying theme that wouldn't you know, it'd be nice to sort of get rid of the ego. Right. But, you know, most books that talk about how to get rid of the ego say don't try to get rid of it because that which is trying to get rid of the ego is also ego. Um, so <laughs> so I think the key is awareness, you know, becoming yeah. aware of what is going on sort of inside your mind, inside inside your, your brain, inside your psych- psychological structure. And, and I think if you can become in touch with something besides ego, sort of in addition to ego, because it's hard to get rid of it. Uh, and, but if you just become aware of the other stuff, that other stuff is where real fulfillment comes from, enrichment comes from. And that other stuff is usually fascinated by the external world, fascinated by other people, fascinated by connection and love and, um, understanding, uh, and, becoming sort of one with the energy of other people, of the environment, of animals, and of our of our world. And that's that's where true fulfillment is accessible yeah. as possible. You know, it, it's funny you say this because like I, it reminds me of a story my best friend from college told me, you know, right after she got married, people would ask her, great, when are you having a kid? And then right after she had the first kid, they literally asked her a day later, when are you having the second one? It's like, okay, yeah, this and is it's what like, you Come on, hey, the kid, I mean, I haven't even changed his first diaper yet. Can I have a minute? You know, it's... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's nuts. Yeah. It's nuts. And, and our whole society is nuts in that way. You know, absolutely. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. 
If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, it's funny because I mean, even as as an author, you know, like one of the things I always say is you get like these two days in a spotlight where you get to show off your book. And, you know, first, you know, that doesn't represent the two years you spent writing it. And then the buzz almost always immediately wears off. Like I remember when I got a book deal, I thought, oh, you know what? Like I'm going to be on cloud nine. This is the thing I've been trying to accomplish for so long. And, you know, that satisfaction lasted for probably about three months and then everything was back to normal. Right, right. Yeah. And then you're like, okay, here I am. I'm here. You know, what now? And uh, yes. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, you've alluded to your son uh, a couple of times. So I wonder, you know, what um, about the way that your parents raised you uh, has influenced um, the way that you're raising your own kids? And also, you know, when you're somebody who's accomplished, you know, what you have, uh, you know, as the CEO of this massive company, how do you uh, make sure your kids are aware of the amount of privilege that they've been blessed with? Because I, I think that that's something that became just some, I became so much more aware of over the last few years, especially, you know, seeing the pandemic. I mean, you know, my parents weren't rich by any stretch of the imagination. My dad's a college professor. We lived an upper middle class life. There's no question as to whether I would get a college education. And right. it's only looking back, I realized that those are privileged circumstances. And yeah, I mean, yeah. your son is growing up in even far more privileged circumstances than I did. So how do you maintain, you know, how do you make sure you maintain awareness of that? Yeah, great question. And I, and I think both those two questions you asked, I think, in my mind, really dovetail. So the first you asked was basically, what did, what did my parents do and how did it influence how I raised my kids? So I've got two boys, uh, 23 and 21, and then I've got a daughter who's 16. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, my parents did so many things right. And I don't want to talk about that right now. I'll talk about one thing I think that they didn't do very well. And that was my, especially maybe maybe my father, he didn't emphasize trying at all. Okay. My dad basically said, yeah, you've got great genetics. Um, you know, uh, you can do anything you want. If you want to be an Olympic swimmer, you'll be an Olympic swimmer. If you want to be a pro tennis player, you'll be a pro tennis player. Anything you want to do, you can do. 
Um, and uh, you guys, and he said, you'd sit my brother and I down. You guys are, you know, top of the heap. You're brilliant kids. You're smart. You're strong. You can do anything you want, anything you want, and you will succeed. Well, that sounds good. That sounds complimentary. But let me tell you what the effect of that is. The effect of that is, okay, if you don't do something extraordinarily well, you're a complete idiot, okay? Because your dad just told you it's going to be a piece of cake to be on top of the world. Okay. There was no message about, Hey guys, you're going to have to go out there into this world and try really hard. Okay. And the more effort you give, the more you'll get out of this life. That wasn't the message. The message was everything's going to come easy. Go get it. That was really the message. I didn't like that message. And I didn't realize I didn't like it at the time because it sounded like a compliment. Hey, dad thinks I can do anything I want, you know, but when your dad, let's just say your dad, and you said this yourself about your, <laughs> the expectation you were going to get a 4.0. So yeah. did you get, hats and horns and a cake and a party when you got a 4.0 no right hell no it was no it was like yeah that was the price of admission to getting a meal at home right it's like that's what it was being you growing up in your family you had to get a 4.0 so you didn't get any sort of hats and horns and a celebration for getting a 4.0 it was given it was taken for granted so i felt like anything i did there was no way to please my dad because my dad had already told me I'm going to be an Olympian if I just wake up and go swim twice, you know? So I ended up, I think, finding some violent levels of insecurity in that I never felt that anything I did was good enough. And to this day, I would describe myself, I mean, I do describe myself to those closest to me after like a couple of glasses of wine as an underachiever. It's like, I can think of, when I think of my life, all I can, you know, and, you know, and all I can, th- you know, when I, you know, the second year at law school, I got the best grades in, in the law school. And, and then, then I was thinking, instead of going, my God, isn't that great? I got the best grades in law school. I, instead of that, I look back at the first year when I had been the top 10%, but I was like, Top 10% means what? In my mind, it meant that I was below, you know, 9% of, you know, uh, the people in the class. And so all I could see was, well, you know, that's, that's, you know, X amount of people that got better grades than me. That was, why didn't I try harder? And then when I got the best grades, I was like, oh shit, I should have done that last year. You know? So again, it's that ego thing where nothing's ever enough. And that sort of dovetailed with my father's constant explanation that, you know, hey, you were born of such intelligence and strength that you can do whatever you want, made me just never feel like anything was good enough. Okay. So now fast forward to, you know, I have three kids. How did I raise my kids? Just the opposite in that way. I would tell my kids, you know, look, man, you know, don't expect anything good to happen if you don't try hard. You know, don't expect to do well in school if you don't try hard. Don't expect things will come easy. They don't. Things are hard. Life's hard. You got to try hard and work hard. And you, you got to expect that there's going to be rainy days. You got to expect that there's going to be times where you fail. And you got, you know, and so I really pushed this message of effort. Um, you know, and, and yet my kids would look at me and sort of say, well, you know, it seems like, you know, you did pretty well, that type of thing. And, and, and I, I really wanted to emphasize that despite what outwardly looks like success for me, you know, my life's been, I guess, a lot like anyone else's life. I have felt many times like a loser, like a failure, not good enough. I have felt, in fact, I would say perhaps more than most people, I have felt those negative associ- feelings and associations with myself. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and I didn't want my kids to feel that way. And so a lot of times I think that one of my sons, for instance, has said to me, you know, well, dad, I, sometimes it just feels like a drag because I don't feel like I could ever live up to you, what you've done. And I'm like, well, but... Y- you're already living up to what I've done. You, what I've done is what I've done. That's something different than what you should do. You should do what you should do. And it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter whether it involves making money or not making money. It doesn't matter if it involves being a lawyer or not, or being a CEO or not. You can go do something totally different and just do what you want to do and do it with all your heart and it'll be great. You know? So, and I think that, um, 
I, I've been able to, I hope I've been able to give that message rather pers- per, per, persuasively to my kids because it, it is true that I actually don't believe what most people believe about success. I think the Western world has success completely wrong. You know, I think the assumptions about success are absolutely uh, upside down, backwards and wrong. I mean, for instance, the assumption that it is better to be wealthy than not wealthy, I think is not true. And I think, in fact, if you just look at, if you study it, what you'll find is generally speaking, those with with less money, you know, uh, are happier than those with a lot of money. As long as, let me just say, as long as, you know, you have good shelter, enough to eat, enough to drink, and you know, right? Like, But if you get above a subsistence level, if you get to a point of comfort where you're comfortable and you're safe and you're eating, money beyond that doesn't really add happiness. And a lot of money beyond that, I would say, not only doesn't add happiness, but also maybe starts to infringe on happiness because it's um, it causes people to focus on the wrong things, uh, chase the wrong things, and chase things that are intended to gratify the ego instead of things that are truly fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing this documentary with, you know, like people who had hundreds of millions of dollars. And this guy's like, at this point, you once you have every single toy that you wanted, he said, then it's just a game. He said, you're literally just playing a game where you're keeping score. That's right. That's right. And who's and, and, and keeping score with an assumption that a higher score dollar wise is better. And it's not. It's just not. So what about the privilege thing? Oh, you know, I, you know, I, we, so, um, my ex-wife and I, I think both shared in common, just an allergy to the thought of the kids being spoiled. And, uh, you know, and we both were taught the value of the dollar growing up and both were, you know, like, like you said, I was privileged in the sense that I was pretty sure I was going to have my, my parents would help pay for my college. And, you know, I had a great meal every day and, my parents were smart and taught me a lot and, and super parents. So I was privileged for sure. But, you know, my parents also, you know, they didn't pay for my car and they made me pay for it. They made me pay for my insurance. They made me pay my gas. So it's like my ability to drive my car was limited on how much money I had for gas. And so I learned, you know, I was taught the value of the dollar. And so I've tried to do the same thing with my kids where, you know, and it's been difficult, actually, quite frankly, because it's very, very hard in this country. But let's just say in the town of Boulder, Colorado, where my kids grew up. You know, if you didn't want to get your kids an iPhone, for example, you know, if you didn't want to give your kids a a, a smartphone of some kind, you know, you would immediately put them in the minority of the kids in the school because everyone's got an iPhone. So then you're like, okay, God, do we get them an iPhone because all the kids have an iPhone or do we not give them an iPhone because we don't want to give them a bunch of stuff like that that seems a bit unnecessary at their age? You know, so there was a lot of these arm wrestles that we dealt with. But but basically, we tried to really let the kids you know, earn stuff, um, you know, but it's, it was very difficult uh, raising kids in Boulder, Colorado. And I will say, yeah. I think it is very difficult raising kids almost anywhere in the developed world without them being, um, having a sense of entitlement, very, very difficult. And when I look at uh, a lot of the first generation immigrants I've met, um, and I've met literally tens of thousands of them in my life because we had so many um, working at Chipotle. And, um, I have a huge admiration for these first generation immigrants and, you know, they grew up with, uh, many of them grew up in, with no money. Um, they grew up, uh, thinking and believing and knowing that anything they were going to get in their life was going to come from the, their own hands and feet and hard work, you know, yeah. and their own minds and their own, and their own diligence and growing up, not knowing that your life is set up for you growing up, not having privilege growing up, not uh, knowing that you're going to have enough money to eat when you're older or buy a house when you're older or go to college when you're older. You know, 
in my opinion, uh, that builds tremendous character. You know, struggle builds character. And I think it's extremely hard to raise kids, uh, like in my case, I'll just keep it personal for a minute. It was very hard to raise my kids to not have a sense of entitlement. It was very hard to raise them to understand the value of struggle. Really hard, you know, because I was in a comfortable car that didn't break down. I had a lot of food in the fridge, even if I had, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and we had a comfortable home with a nice view on a safe street. And those privileges are things that are sort of impossible to intentionally deprive your kids of um, when you have them. And so the only way to raise your kids is to use, you know, words like, Hey guys, you understand that, you know, this isn't something everyone has. So, you know, you, and, and, and when you go out into life, you're still going to have to earn it. You're still going to have to stand on your own two feet so forth. So, but it's really hard. It's hard because actions speak a lot louder than words and kids who grow up with privileged circumstances tend to have a sense of entitlement. And I think it's a widespread problem in the United States of America right now is that a huge number of young people grow up these days, I think, overly pampered, overly privileged, um, with a sense of entitlement, and they don't really get it that what you're supposed to do when you go to a job and your first priority should be to give more to your employer than you receive, to show value, to be, to earn it, to be excellent, to try your hardest. You know, now I hear a lot of guys going, oh man, I'm going to go to do this job, but just long enough till I get another job. Well, that's a terrible attitude, but it's an attitude cultivated by a, an overly privileged society that where kids grow up with too much, um, with things that are, that are too easy for them in some ways. Now, that's not to say it's not difficult growing up in this day and age of social media. I think it's very difficult. But in the way of privilege, um, it's really hard not to grow up with a sense of entitlement. And I see way too much of it. Yeah. I mean, I, my parents are first generation immigrants. So I, you know, I got to see what you're talking about firsthand. And there yeah. was a time when I used to think that the career advice they gave me was nonsense because I chose to do something unconventional. And then I realized I'm like the context from which they're giving that advice makes sense because they grew up in a situation where you either ended up in poverty or security. Like there was no nothing yeah. in between. So yeah. naturally yeah. your risk tolerance is significantly lower. Um, yeah, I think and, that's generally yeah. true in India, right? I mean, it's very, yeah. it's, you know, kind of black and white. It's, you know, very, very successful Absolutely. people. And there's a huge caste system uh, w w where a lot of people are, you know, uh, in, a, in, a, in a position of great poverty. And it's not something yeah. that... Well, surprisingly, a lot of those extremely wealthy people in India, like billionaires, all came from really like impoverished circumstances like the, exactly uh, and guess what they learned they learned the value of struggle and they've been working their ass off yeah. their whole life you know they've been running exactly. like crazy right yeah yeah the, the ambanis who pretty much own india the father who originally started their empire started as a gas station attendant and now i think they're on like the forbes like five number five on the forbes list good lord yeah yeah but you know stories like that are are many and, you know, and, and there's something to celebrate. I think it's wonderful. Um, here we call it the American dream. And I believe in the American yeah. dream. I think it's awesome. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's funny to really partake of the American dream in some ways. Okay. In some ways, you know, people who've had to struggle a lot have an advantage because they've learned to struggle. They've learned to work hard. They've learned great habits. You know, And so, mm -hmm. and that's tough for a parent in my circumstances to be, it, it was, it's hard to do that effectively. And so I tried hard and, and hopefully I did okay, but it's hard. Yeah. And Boulder is definitely a bubble of privilege. Like there's just, you know, oh, there's no, no nothing bad, bad things rarely happen here. Unfortunately, we had that shooting, but beyond that, it's kind of, you know, one of the most sort of peaceful places you could ever be. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I brought up the other day that same thing I said to my mom, I said, come on, it's Boulder. And she was like, well, that shooting just happened, Monty. And I was like, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But mom, that's like, I know. And that's bad. And it was one thing. But if you, if you erase that, it's like, it's pretty easy around here. Absolutely. 
Well, um, let, let's get um, kind of into the trajectory of your career. Uh, so it's funny because, you know, in my life, I don't think I've ever met anybody who hates their jobs as much as attorneys. Yeah, uh, like, <laughs> yeah that's true. I literally, that's I don't think true. I've ever met anybody. Very few people who are lawyers tell me they wanted to be a lawyer, but apparently the money gets so good they can't leave. Uh, what, what in the world made you want to go to law school? Well, I, you know, I guess it was my curiosity and that I was always asking questions, asking questions, asking questions. And I, I just, you know, I, I, late in college, um, I had spent a couple summers working in my dad's laboratory in Denver because I wanted to be a doctor. And so I was in the lab and I realized, you know, I'm really interested in the lab. I think it's, and I really like it, but it's kind of lonely for me. I, I decided that I'm better suited to be speaking with people, um, and, uh, talking to people rather than, you know, you know, opening them up and doing surgery on them. And so I switched at the last minute my major from molecular biology to speech communication. I thought, you know, I'm going to do public speaking and I'm not sure what I'll do with it, but uh, I decided, kind of had in the back of my mind, maybe I'll be a lawyer. And, um, and I decided, yeah, I want to go to law school. And then I decided I wanted to go to law school. So then I, I really enjoyed the public speaking stuff. I enjoyed getting up in front of people. I enjoyed expressing myself in that way. And so I think that's kind of what pushed me towards being a lawyer. But also when I got out of college, I went and became an insurance adjuster in Los Angeles and was driving all around, you know, basically uh, meeting with people who had had, you know, big property losses, houses that had burned down or graffiti or uh, floods and this, this and that, and uh, adjusting the losses to pay them uh, for their damage. And in doing that, I met loads and loads and loads of people, mostly who were in a time of great stress or distress um, from what had happened to their home. And I found that I, I found it greatly rewarding to be able to help them. You know, um, I had this giant checkbook courtesy of farmers insurance. And I was able to, you know, pay for their damage and, and put them back on their feet. And it was just really cool. And, uh, so I love that. I loved helping people. And I found that, um, when I found people that were in a state of, uh, disharmony or struggle because of having lost their home or whatever, I found that I was able to really be of comfort to them. And that made me feel really good. So in doing that, um, I also worked with some lawyers because there was a lot of fraud that took place in the insurance world. And when you had fraud, sometimes we had to call on lawyers to defend ourselves from saying no to an insurance claim, for example. And when I saw those lawyers, I said, oh, that, yeah, that's cool. I can kind of see what they're doing. And some of them, I think, were were good, which inspired me. And some, some of them were, were lousy, which really inspired me because I thought I can be better than they, they are. <laughs> you know, so, so the good ones gave me something to aspire towards. And the ones that weren't any good gave me something to aspire away from. But either way, I was sort of caught with this notion, I could do that, I bet. So I went to law school and, and uh, law school, I wouldn't say is fun. I mean, that would be an incorrect statement. Law school is not fun. It's super competitive. It's super difficult. It's super intense. It's exhausting. Um, it's scary. Uh, you don't know how you're doing until you get all your grades back. Cause there's no quizzes or there's nothing to tell you how you're doing until you're done doing it. You know what I mean? It's like you get all oh, your exams are worth everything. One exam at the end. It's like, ah, it's scary. Um, so law school wasn't particularly fun, although it was very interesting, you know? And so I, when I, when I ended up excelling in law school, that felt good. And then I went out and became a lawyer and I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Everything you said about why people hate it, uh, is true. I mean, it's super stressful. It's super difficult. It's filled with conflict. It's get up early, go to bed late, work hard all day, never take a break, never rest because you've always got stuff that you should do or should do better. You can always prepare more for the next trial or the next deposition or arbitration or mediation. You're just never ready. You're never done. And it's never enough, you know, because your clients are depending on you. So it's exhausting. On the other hand, it's super, super fascinating. It's different every day. It stimulates your mind. Um, you get to help people who are in grave need, need of help, uh, and you can do an exceptional job and really set yourself apart 
by by really caring about the people who you're working for and with. And so I absolutely love being a lawyer. I think it was the best education I could have had for me anyway. And uh, I just loved it. It was it was great. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. It's funny because I, I remember being at the MBA program thinking, I wish I had gotten a law degree because when I, I, I remember I had a cousin who was an attorney who was getting an MBA. I said, listen, man, if you're an attorney, you can do anything an MBA does, but the vice versa is not true. A law degree is far more useful. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I actually agree with that. I, I think that um, the law degree, while it doesn't teach you business per se, it is an incredible business degree. I mean, by the time I went over uh, to be CEO of Chipotle, um, there, you know, 
there were so many things that I took from my, my legal education and my, uh, my law career that I think really, really helped me as a CEO. Um, I mean, for instance, yeah. decisiveness. I mean, as a lawyer, you learn to, to a great deal of discipline in decision making. And, and that's, uh, that's a skill that really, you get a lot of repetition at, at making decisions, making decisions, making decisions and making really tough decisions and making really tough decisions really, really fast with limited information. Um, you know, you have to think on, you have to learn to think on, if you're going to be a trial lawyer, which I was, you have to learn to think on your feet. You have to respond to adversity quickly and effectively and in a way that's convincing to a judge or jury. <clears throat> you know, you have to, <clears throat> you know, you have to, um, to, to learn to really be credible and to be credible, you have to know what you're talking about and to know what you're talking about. You have to work really, really, really hard and understand the law and the facts super, super well. Um, so, you know, and when you do all that, when you learn to digest, because so basically as a lawyer in law school and in the career of being a lawyer, you, you learn to digest heroic amounts of information quickly. You learn to take a lot in and make a, dis, a quick decision from it. You learn, um, uh, how to think logically better. And well, those things are critically important in every business, absolutely every business, particularly being yeah. decisive with less than all the information. So I think it was great, great education. I couldn't recommend it highly enough to anyone who has an interest in it. Yeah. So one of the, the things that you say in the book is that we as humans are inherently limited. Our brains are only so big. Our bodies are only so strong. Our ability to understand the whole truth of the universe is limited. These limitations affect us all. And I I think that really struck a chord with me because it was so real. And, you know, like, so we had two people here. I've had um, Justine Musk, who's Elon's ex-wife here, um, to talk about the psychology of visionaries. Uh, and, you know, I've asked this question to a couple of people uh, in some form or another. And, you know, one of the things she told me is that, you know, I don't want to get all deterministic here, but just I don't think that being like Elon is something that can be learned. That is something that's inherent. And, you know, my old mentor, Greg Hartle, echoed that exact sentiment. And he said, you know, people often look at what's possible, but don't think about what's probable. Um, you, as, as somebody who's achieved what you have, I'm really curious, uh, you know, what your take is on that. I mean, you wrote these exact words, which I think echo those sentiments just in different words. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you can learn to be Elon Musk for sure. Um, I mean, Elon is a brilliant guy who's wired stupendously uniquely, you know, and um, and I think that's true with all of us, by the way. I mean, all of us are incredibly, incredibly unique. His brand of uniqueness has made a big splash in a way that's very famous. I mean, that's made him very famous and, and he's an incredible guy. Um, you know, <laughs> But, you know, when I just get back to like sort of myself and, and what's led me to be, you know, and again, I, I always put, you know, success in quotes because I'm very careful not to assume that success means to be a CEO or to be wealthy or to be, you know, to be to graduate from law school or anything. I mean, success means to me, success means, you know, being you know, having a sense of fulfillment through helping other people be at their best. Success means being a powerfully positive force in this world that helps others. That's what success means to me, because that's what really yield, uh, yields fulfillment in almost everybody. Um, so sometimes that doesn't come with any wealth at all. I mean, I don't think, uh, you know, Mother Teresa was wealthy. I don't think Mahatma Gandhi was wealthy. I don't think Jesus Christ was wealthy. I don't think the Buddha, well, actually, he grew up, the Buddha actually was born wealthy, <laughs> um, but then went on to not be wealthy. And, and those people um, are, were magnificently successful, right? Um, so I don't think wealth and success are really tied together, but, but anyway, I digress. So back to, let's say that someone goes, Hey, money, you've been really successful. Oh, thank you. Um, well, 
what's made you successful? Well, I think my what's made me successful, if anything, has been my ability, my my knowledge of my limitations, my understanding that I am not um, uh, that that I am not brilliant enough to solve all problems, that I'm not brilliant to do, enough to do everything myself, but my huge belief in other people. That's what's made me successful. Um, my, and I guess I mean that in terms of successful any way, you, any way you slice it, like even if you define it like I define it. You know, I believe in people. When I see other people, no matter who I meet, I have this, I don't know if it's a habit or an ability. Let's just say I have this, I'll give myself some credit here. I'll say I have an ability to see someone else and to see what's strong about them really quickly. And it comes from a place where I see that and I'm very I'm very much in other people's admiration because I, I look at someone and I say, oh my God, that per- God, I'd love to have that quality of that person. And this can be, and I'm telling you, this can be, I can meet a homeless person instantly. I'll find brilliance in them. I can meet someone who's poor and down on their luck instantly. I'll find brilliance in them. I can meet a Wall Street billionaire instantly I'll find brilliance in them, but probably not the thing that everyone else thinks is brilliant about them. So I find things that I find brilliant about just about everybody. And so everyone in the world has become my teacher. Every single person I've ever met is my teacher. And, and, and that attitude that you can learn so tremendously much from anybody you meet, uh, and maybe particularly those that other people would consider unworthy of learning from. Those are my greatest teachers. Okay. So when you have the whole world as your group of teachers and you have an enormous belief in their brilliance, in their wisdom, in their capability, um, then you've got a huge army at your disposal because when you go out and believe so deeply in other people, they feel it. They know it. It, it helps them blossom and become the best yeah. version of themselves. And so, you know, like I, um, I guess I didn't write this in the book, but I often say it since with the creation of my docu-series, you know, Connected. I'm not sure if you know about that. But anyway, my docu-series, you know, is is, is all about demonstrating um, that all of us in this world, we're really all the same in the sense that all of us want to be seen, valued, understood, and loved. I mean, that's what we all want. And we go about it very, very different ways. Some people very effectively and some people not so effectively. I would say that very, very wealthy people tend to go about being seen, valued, understood, and loved with much less skill and much less effectiveness than poor people. I mean, in my mind, there's absolutely no question that that's true. Poor people tend to um, value in life the things that are most important, loyalty, love for family, cooperation, helping others. I mean, a lot of people who are quote unquote poor, and again, I put that in quotes because to me, being not having much money doesn't make you poor. Having a poor spirit makes you poor. But But people who care about each other, love each other, help each other, and, and are always in service of others. If they have no dollars, they're rich. And they're rich in friendships. They're rich in fulfillment. They're rich in a connection and unity with God, no matter how you define God, by the way. Because when I say God, I don't mean the God of some religion. I mean, like I define in my book, that which is <laughs> more powerful than us and beautiful and, and, and uh, you know, loving and all-knowing and something that unites us all. And so, you know, that it, being in touch with God, being in touch with love, being in touch with, you know, sort of universal consciousness, if you want to call it that, being in touch with and being able to make a connection with other human beings, animals or nature. I mean, that's where all fulfillment comes from. And that's where all brilliance comes from. And that's the power that I've been able to, I think, quite successfully harness to help me to, for instance, build a law firm or, for instance, run Chipotle effectively or 
you know, write a good book or, you know, do my docu-series or anything that I've done in my life that, that other people would say, hey, that's cool. That's successful. How did you do that? It's, it's really from learning, learning, learning as much as I can from other people and working my very hardest to help other people be at their best. But if you want to help other people be at their best, the best place to start is to really learn to love people, to respect them, to know that they're filled with brilliance, to, to admire that brilliance, to, to learn from that brilliance. And I think I've done that pretty well. Yeah. You know, so one of the other things that, that struck me, and, and this is one of the things I actually highlighted because I, I, you know, make a point of either bold highlight or, you know, um, just underline when I'm, I'm taking notes. And this struck me in particular. You said the reality is there are no dead end jobs. There's no getting ahead. There are no lousy parts of life that should be met with impatience. Instead, <laughs> each part of our experience holds extremely valuable lessons for our development and should be cherished. And, you know, Robert Greene said this in the book Mastery. He said, no experience in your life should be thought of as wasted. And I think the reason that that in particular stood out to me was because my first job uh, out of high school was at McDonald's or in high school was at McDonald's. Uh -huh, yeah, yeah. And I, I look back at that and, you know, that was one of the best character building experiences ever because I think it one taught me how privileged I was because, you know, for me it was, Hey, this is my job during my senior year. I'm out of here in eight, you know, eight months. And my right. mom would not let me quit. She was like, there's no way in hell you're quitting. Cause after three months I wanted to quit. And basically I had this angry Jamaican lady as the manager who just yelled constantly. <laughs> so, which is an odd paradox in and of itself. Uh -huh. uh, but what I realized, <laughs> I've never met an angry man, Jamaican person. <laughs> yeah, me either. So that, this is, they, they exist. <laughs> Yeah, uh, but you no, know, the crazy thing was like, you know, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, obviously, but now I look back and say, you know, like that was basically life for a lot of the people who are working there. For me, it was just a pit stop. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, how do people learn to recognize the value in what seems like a dead end job? Because I think to me, you know, in fact, I'm, I'm writing a new book that I plan to self publish and I have a section in it titled Find a Job That You Hate. And I said, the yeah, reason for that good, good is for you. to appreciate, because after that, you will appreciate the jobs that you have after in a way that you never would otherwise. Is, is, is it actually the title of the book? It's going to be Find a Job You Hate? No, no. Although that would be a good title for a book. Because, yeah, that'd be a great title for a book. I'd love that title. But if I had that title, you know what my subtitle would be? So the, the title would be Find a Job You Hate. The subtitle would be And Then Love It. That would be my subtitle. And yeah. to me, that's hugely important. It's like, I love the idea of finding a job you hate because it's funny, right? But really, yeah. I don't believe, I don't believe in hating a job. I think, I think it's like get a job and then be grateful as hell you have it. Work your absolute hardest at it. Separate yourself every way you can in terms of being excellent in terms of what you, what you give to your employer. Give as much as you can with as minimal of expectations of receiving as you can. And then you will find yourself growing mightily and, and having great success. Um, I, the, when people say dead end job, it just gets my hackles up. It, dead end job? Or when people say, oh, yeah, he had a kind of a shitty career. I mean, what, the, what does that mean? The only shitty career is a career where you don't do any good for anyone else and you hate it. Okay, well, okay. I guess you could call that shitty. But I would say what's shitty about that is your attitude. You know, anyone who's got a shitty career, their attitude sucks. Okay, because you can go to any job. And I mean any job, you know. Um, it just popped in my mind that dirty job show from TV, but you can go into any job and find something wonderful about it. Find something meditative, find something spiritually rewarding, find something that you can grow from, from, um, every single moment of every day should be a learning experience, you know, and especially those things that are difficult, especially those things where you feel underappreciated 
undervalued. You know, learn to find value in that which you don't much value. You know, learn to find excellence in that which you think doesn't matter. Do a great job when no one's watching. You know, these things aren't just, you know, aren't just, you know, cute things to say. These are the way you learn to become fulfilled. These are the way you feel good about yourself. And they're the way you become successful. I mean, anyone who becomes really successful gets there by doing something of great value for others. I mean, that's how you get there, right? So to demonstrate from a very young age uh, or from a very early stage in your career that you care about what you do and you will do it to the very best of your ability, that's a huge lesson that everyone should learn. So I think your mom was right. No, you're not quitting that job after three months. You're going to stay there until you learn to work with this difficult Jamaican, uh, hateful, whatever lady. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, you're going to stay there until you uh, become best friends with that boss or at least get a great working relationship. You're going to stay there until you appreciate that job. I, I, I'm, man, I'm on your mom's side all day long. Yeah, it's funny because, I mean, I, I've been probably fired from every single job I've ever had post-college, which is why <laughs> I don't have one. Um, but my very first job was working for with this tyrant of a CEO. Um, he was an Indian guy, young, you know, and he fired me five days before Christmas. And I always thought that that job was such a waste, but I realized the most valuable thing I got from that job was how not to lead people. Yeah, um, oh, well, that's which, true, too. Yeah, 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 I mean, know, absolutely. Was, that guy was I'm terrible. Speaking of which. Yeah, I mean, you know, he he like he fired somebody every three months. I mean, eventually the board removed him about two years after I left, and the company never really amounted to what it should have. Yeah, um, sure and didn't. largely because you know he had you know there was a lot of nepotism. I mean, it was it was, it, it was like a great lesson in how not to run a company. Yeah, and those lessons are valuable too. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, speaking of, of you know running a company, I mean, you ran you know what is effectively a massive organization that all of us are familiar with, and. One of the things that you talk about in the book is vulnerability. And you say that, you know, we need to become more, not less human. We need to be in touch with who we are and share ourselves with them such that we're worthy of their continued trust and confidence. We must be wise enough to know when we should lead them or allow them to lead us because a great leader must at times be a good follower. Um, but you also talk about sort of this capacity to be fully human. And one of the the things, I mean, you are in a particularly interesting position because one of the things I realized as a public figure is that you almost have to be selective when you, you know, when it comes to vulnerability, uh, you know, so as a public figure who has been in, in such a high profile position, where is that line for you between vulnerability and train wreck? Because I know that I've crossed it and sometimes that's what it's take to taken to figure out where it's at. Well, okay, great question. Let's play with this. Some. Let me start with a, a bold statement that, and you can prove me wrong and we can have some fun with it. I don't think there's any line at all. I don't think there's any line whatsoever. I think you, you show maximum vulnerability in all phases of life at all times, period. That's what I think. Now, let, let me, let me, let me sort of back up a second to say, okay, but does that mean that, you know, that you're, that you're always, you know, that you always cry when you're sad? Does it mean you, you say what comes to your mind every second of every day, no matter what audience you're in front of? No, no. I mean, you can be vulnerable and still behave appropriately, you know? So, um, you can feel strong feelings and still behave appropriately. But I think vulnerability is a state of being that is always better uh, than, than to try to draw a line and have times where you're not vulnerable. Um, yeah. So that's what I think. So, but, but poke holes in that. Yeah. So, you know, the, the reason I asked that, you know, I was, I was on a reality TV show earlier this year that ended up, you know, or, or like, I think it aired last summer called Indian matchmaking. And one of the things that I went in knowing was that, okay, you, I had a cousin who was an attorney. I had him look at the media release and he said, look, he said, 
it doesn't matter what this release says. Um, you're an attorney, so you probably know this. He said, it doesn't matter what this says. He's like, anybody can make you look like a jackass in the editing. He said, your job is to give them zero ammo, which they can do that with. Yeah. And I realized I was mindful of that because I already had a public presence. Um, yeah, I, yeah. you know, I have investors that I'm accountable to. I have, because, you know, I think when you're, it, I mean, just as you are, you know, as a CEO of Chipotle, when you're in the public eye, everything you do is a reflection on all of the people who are associated with you. So yeah. if you're an idiot, they are by association. Like I, I remember telling somebody once, I think it might've been on the show where it's like, you know, as crazy as it sounds, there are probably some really great wonderful, kind people who worked in the Trump administration, but by association, everybody thinks they're horrible. Right, right, right. Well, you know, I don't think being vulnerable ever means that you have to be stupid. And when you're really vulnerable, listen, I mean, if ever you've pointed an example where you got to be careful with vulnerability, reality TV show with an editor doing whatever the hell he wants might be the example, right? Because if, but, but, but again, if you go into that situation of a reality TV show and as a participant, and you are vulnerable, being vulnerable, again, uh, also, when you're really vulnerable, it means that you're going to be more aware, more astute, more alert, more, and, and, and really, de facto, I mean, I mean, because of all those things, more intelligent, you know, and so you're going to be more aware uh, in your state of maximum vulnerability of other people who might try to be taking, might try to take advantage of you. Um, being vulnerable doesn't mean letting someone take advantage of you. It means letting yourself have full access to your heart, you know, at all times. It means, it means if something hurts you, letting it, feeling the pain and letting the pain be. It means if something makes you sad, feeling, allowing the sadness, you know, if something makes you angry, you allow the anger. Now, it doesn't mean that if something makes you angry in a situation uh, where it's not appropriate to slam your fist down, you can choose to not slam your fist down and still have behavior appropriate for the situation. Um, but, uh, but that doesn't mean you weren't vulnerable. That just means you made a decision to behave in a certain way that was appropriate to a situation. Yeah. Well, let's talk, um, specifically about empowerment, because I know that you, you know, talked about this, you know, throughout the book multiple times. I mean, you said it's the holy grail of leadership. You say empowerment is the heart of leadership. If you can figure out how to empower the people you lead, it will help you lead any organization to huge success. Teaching and learning the art of empowering others can be challenging and doing it well involves mastery of many interrelated concepts. And, you know, I think the the reason that struck me so much is, you know, we're, we're about to have a transition on our team. Um, our current community manager is leaving and somebody else is taking over. And, you know, I realized I hadn't asked her, like, what do you want out of this? Like, what is your vision for what you're going to get from this? And it, like, it just reminded me that I, I needed to do that. Um, but talk to me about this. Like, where do people go wrong with this? And then, you know, how do they actually do it well? Yeah, well, uh, okay. The, 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 the place people go wrong, <clears throat> the way people go wrong uh, or do this incorrectly is that they try to amass power. Okay, that's probably the biggest way people go wrong. They they when someone is put in a leadership position and they're ambitious and they're hardworking and they're intelligent, what they will usually do is try to be very 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 good at what they do. Try to have the answers. Try to and try to wield the power. Try to tell other people what to do and basically get involved in uh, in thinking and basically coming to the place where they decide that it's all about them. You know that if they do a great job, things will go well. That if they don't, it won't. But what they forget is in the, the only way to, to really be a great leader is to harness the power of people. 
you have to harness the power of other people. You know, there's only so much any one of us can do in this world. Okay. Even if you're brilliant as hell, like Elon Musk, guess what? He's got a huge team of people doing brilliant things. He assembles huge teams of really smart people and points them in a the direction of achieving, you know, making a brilliant product like a Tesla or like a SpaceX rocket. Um, so he has to harness the power of thousands of people, you know, him being brilliant while cool, while awesome, while fun, and while something to admire for all of us is not even close to enough to do what he's been able to accomplish as, as a leader. And the only source of a leader's power is that other people choose to follow. The only source of a leader's power is that other people choose voluntarily to follow that leader. There is no way to get people to follow you by demanding that they follow you. Now, yes, you can get them to do their job by threatening to fire them, but that's that's what I call management. You can't manage brilliance out of someone. You can only lead someone to brilliance, okay? So if you want to create an, an extraordinary organization that accomplishes more than anyone ever thought possible, you need to be a leader, not a manager. And as I say in the book, a manager is someone who basically gets someone to do something that they want them to do. But a leader is someone who gets someone to do something that they themselves, the person themselves, wants to do, which is also in furtherance of the leader's mission. Leadership is so different than management. And the biggest mistake people make is they go manage. What I have seen, I've seen many, many very intelligent, very brilliant people who are god-awful leaders. Um, and the reason they're bad leaders is they actually don't care about the people that they're with. They don't respect the people they're with. They think that they are better or above the people that they're leading or that they're managing. I won't say leading because they're not leading, that they're managing. If you think you're above other people, I mean, just if you think you're above other people and that you're you're more important, you're going to be a lousy leader. You're not going to be a leader. You're going to be a manager. You can't do it. You have to look, look to other people for their brilliance. Helps to, you have to see their brilliance. You have to want to watch it blossom. You know, and, and I say in the book, everyone's natural state is to grow, blossom, develop, and become a better version of themselves. That's what everyone's natural state is. But not many people are doing that. Okay. Why not? Well, there is some dysfunction present. Okay. Either they had a very difficult upbringing or they've got, uh, you know, psychological demons or they're, you know, they have drug dependencies because of that or they have whatever. There's something going on in their life that's holding them back. The leader's job is to help remove dysfunction. The leader's job is to help make help someone else to be confident in their ability and encouraged by their circumstances. That's the leader's job. So most people who go into positions of quote unquote leadership, like CEO jobs or whatever, or put in those jobs, they fail because they try to do it all themselves and they try to hoard the power. The best way to lead others is to give your power away as, mo- as effectively as you can so that all the people around you feel powerful. All the people around you are powerful. All the people around you can do the very best work that they can do with a heart filled with a vision that makes them want to do that work and makes them dream of accomplishing that work for their own sense of fulfillment. Now you've got something. Now you're going to achieve brilliance. And that's the, uh, and that's what leadership is about. Empowerment is a bastardized word that, uh, that is highly misunderstood. And, and it, and to be, to be honest, it's, it, it's very frustrating for me. When people incorrectly understand empowerment or use it incorrectly, because what people are doing, they're using that word and oftentimes using it in a way that's actually subordinating people, holding power from people um, and trying to keep people, you know, stuck. But a leader doesn't do that. A leader helps others to be the very, very best version of themselves. A leader helps people grow, blossom and develop. Wow. 
So let's wrap up by talking about two final things, um, priorities and vision. Um, as I said to you, I think the most tactical thing that I got out of the book was, you know, you said that the key when picking priorities is finding the things that if done well will affect the most positive change in all areas of the company. A worthwhile exercise is to write down the top 10 things that you can do to improve your business, then take time to prioritize those in terms of potential impact. Look to see if any of them, if completed, would advance the other priorities on your list. Uh, for those, put them on the top. Once they're in order, you should devote your time to the top three or three. And I actually ended up writing a, a you know a blog post for our private community about this, saying you know like what I called high impact decisions, um, and how you know and I used the example of an online course and saying okay if this you know investing in this course is aligned with your goals, then you know maybe you should invest in it. Um, but it's kind of funny because I think that you'll see this over and over again in damn near every business book, every piece of advice you get from startup you know uh, advisors, and even Sam Altman says this you know that like the job of a founder is execution. Uh, and it's just this year's long grind. So bullshit. What one, sorry, go for it. <laughs> I mean, the job of a founder is execution. Well, to some degree. Yeah. I mean, I, I may be bastardizing the words or not. Paraphrasing well, yeah. Okay. I mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, okay. The job of a founder, I guess is to, is to, is to create or, or have a vision for some product or service that's going to be of huge value to others and find a way right. to make it happen. Right. But that yeah. the biggest part of that's going to be to empower a team ultimately. Yeah. Um, but this prioritization thing, you know, the reason I, I, I think it caught my attention is like, I see so many people who are perpetually distracted. They are never able to get anything done. Uh, you know, one, how do they figure out what they should prioritize? I mean, to me, like I said, this exercise was invaluable because it just boiled it down to, okay, these are the only three things I should be doing for the next like month. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, so in, when you're in a CEO, CEO position, um, or any senior executive position, you're going to have loads and loads and loads and loads and loads of things that you can do. You're going to have loads of suggestions of things that other people say are important to do. You're going to have salespeople and vendors coming at you saying you need this product or service or software because it's going to make you way, way, way better. You're going to have a, a just, you know, you're going to be like, like a machine gun fire of things coming at you, which seem like generally good ideas. Um, you know, the problem is if you take, if you try to do a lot of them, um, you're in deep trouble, uh, cause you'll lose focus and you will not succeed. So what's really important to do is find out, okay, what is it that we want to achieve as a business? Um, and just start writing it down. What do we want to achieve? What are the most important things we want to pull off? And when you write them all down, uh, then you, then you can, you know, sort of start to prioritize, you know, at Chipotle, um, when I got there, I thought, holy, you know, all of a sudden I'm in this new job as being, you know, the top guy at a company with a lot of people, and a lot of restaurants. And I thought, what can I do? Like, what can I do? You know, I can spend all day, every day trying to swat at symptoms and make things better and, and tell people to clean stuff up and tell them to run the restaurants better. But that's not really going to lead to much. What can I do that will make that will make everything better? And what I pretty quickly understood was, OK, that clearly when you have thousands of people working for you, the first thing and most important thing you can do is make sure that all of them are as empowered and, and as effective as they can be, right? So anything that you do to make them more effective is going to have a thousand, if you have a thousand employees, it's going to have a thousand fold in, increase in productivity uh, or a thousand fold. Uh, I should say it will be leveraged a thousand fold. Okay. Whatever you do times a thousand people will be leveraged a thousand people. If it's 75,000 people as, as we're working with me at Chipotle, uh, and if you are find a way to empower all 75,000 of them, you've just leveraged 75,000 people, um, which is infinitely, well, maybe not infinitely, 75,000 times more important than leveraging yourself better. Um, so the way to leverage yourself is to leverage others. So always the top priority has to be that the team is excellent. But when it comes to operational priorities, you know, things to do at Chipotle, I looked at Chipotle and I thought, you know, what is it that's going to make us do well? 
Well, the answer is if customers love us and want to come back a lot and eat tons of burritos and tell their friends because they love them so much, they tell their friends and their friends come and their friends tell their friends and so forth. That's what we need to do to be successful. Well, how do you do that? Well, the answer to that is you have an excellent restaurant experience. Well, how do you have an excellent restaurant experience? Well, the answer is you have an incredible team that really cares and produces an excellent restaurant experience. Okay, once you have a good team, what is the most important aspect of the restaurant experience? Well, when it came down to me, you know, I wrote a bunch of things down. Okay, huge list. Okay, really clean restaurants, perfectly followed recipes, really well-prepared food, clean equipment, clean environment, clean bathrooms in the restaurant. You can write a huge list of things that will make that restaurant experience great, right? Okay, so you write all those down, but then you decide, well, how do, you know, but what, and, and one of those things at Chipotle, one of those things was throughput, okay, the speed with which we served customers. But here's what I figured out. If you really focused on throughput, okay, and tried to get people served more quickly, the act of working on throughput entailed doing lots of the other things on that list really well. So if you say to the team in a Chipotle restaurant, hey, guys, Hey team, well, first of all, let's assume you've already made it a terrific team of empowered people. That's always number one. Okay, now you've got a terrific team of empowered people who have a vision of having a great restaurant. And then you say to them, guys, hey, let's serve customers really quickly because here's what happens when you serve customers quickly. You know, their food will be, I mean, first of all, they won't wait in line as long, which is something they don't like. They'll get their food uh, more quickly, which they will like. The food will be, more, it'll be hot because it won't have cooled off on the line. So it will taste better. Then if you're serving them quickly, that means you're going to be cooking more food more often on the grill, which means it will be more fresh. It will be um, right off the grill, which has just a wonderful taste. It means that your food on the line will be constantly running out and refilled, running out and refilled. So it won't look old and cold. It will look fresh and new and delicious, and it will be fresh and new and delicious. So as you move faster, your food gets better tasting. To move faster, though, requires you to do a bunch of things. It requires you to be ready before any customer comes in. It requires you to be extremely organized, to have extra spoons so you don't have to go walking back to get a spoon when your spoon falls on the floor that you're, you know, the serving spoon I'm talking about on the front line. It involves having all the tin foils that you're going to wrap burritos in separated so they don't get stuck together so it doesn't take longer to serve a customer. It involves, you know, um, having the line perfectly organized. It involves having the right people in the right places in line. It involves so many things. That, that are also things that make the restaurant operation excellent, that if you just focus on throughput, it tends to cause all other operational initiatives to be well accomplished. Um, and, and therefore it's a home run. So instead of saying, Hey guys, let's keep a really organized restaurant. If you say, Hey, let's have maximum throughput. And then you show someone how to achieve that throughput. Well, achieving that throughput requires great organization. So now you don't have to talk about organization as a separate desired goal. You see what I mean? So, yeah, in the, so the way to pick priorities in a business is to find the, the one or two or three priorities, which, if done, will cause the team to accomplish the rest of them. You see what I mean? So oh, certain, yeah. certain goals have lots of other goals associated with them. Those are the goals you want to chase. Mm, beautiful. Um, well, let's let's wrap up by talking about vision. Um, I, I loved the fact that you gave such a, a concise and also clear uh, explanation of vision where you said there are three rules to be sure that your vision is an effective one. It's relatable, it's realistic, and it's impactful. Because I think that, you know, when people read books like Simon Sinek's Start With Why, um, in many of the other books that talk about this kind of stuff, uh, they seem to feel like, okay, I can just apply this sort of foolproof formula and, you know, at the end of it, it'll spit out my vision for my company. 
uh, or whatever it is that I'm working on. And, you know, I, I've learned that it's far from true because even, you know, the whole idea of unmistakable was something that emerged out of three and a half years of work prior to, you know, rebranding everything we did under the unmistakable creative umbrella. Like we were started out as a podcast for bloggers and it was the messages I heard, the things that resonated with me and even the things that pissed me off that ultimately related, you know, resulted in this message. So I'm curious, like how somebody can actually use these three rules to develop a vision for their life or their work. Yeah. Great question. I, you know, you know, that show undercover boss. I've heard of it. Yeah. 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 So, I, you know, yeah. So I've seen it once or twice and, or at least parts of it, but basically the concept is, you know, you take the CEO and you, and, and you dress them up with a, you know, mustache and beard and a costume and put them into one. Let's, if the retail operation, you put them into the retail operation and you know what makes the show, I guess, funny and successful is that basically the CEO who's dressed up and put into their store always learns, you know, incredibly. Uh, I'm, I'm saying that, I guess, jokingly. They're always they always learn to their grand astonishment that the people in the uh, retail location, let's say it's a restaurant, the people in the restaurant don't give a shit about their job, don't care about the restaurant, don't care about the customers, can't wait to quit, but just looking for something better. And then, and when the boss learns that, they're always like, "Oh my god, I had no idea." Well, it's absurd that they have no idea, okay? The idea of not knowing what is in the hearts and minds of the people working for you is, is I, don't, I don't know if I have a word strong enough. It is not only negligent, it is, you, you should be fired immediately for that. I mean, you should be out on your butt. You should not be the CEO if you don't know what the people in your restaurants, in my case, or you know, in your retail operation, think, care about, like, don't like want to do, don't want to do, you know, so to go in and be surprised by that stuff is inexcusable. Um, and so when you go find out that the people in your restaurant don't give a shit about their job, don't care about the customers, don't care about the restaurant, don't care about whether they are, do a good job or a bad job, you know, guess why they don't? Well, it's because they don't have a vision of their own that they think will be achieved by working hard for you. Okay. So what, you know, so then you have to ask yourself when you find out they don't give a shit, then you have to say, instead of saying, why don't they give a shit? You should ask the opposite question. Why would they give a shit? You know, why would people in the restaurant care about your stupid profits? Why would they care about your stupid success? Why would they care about your stupid yacht you're going to buy? They don't. They shouldn't. Why should they care about that shit? So what should people care about? Well, people should care about something that's going to help them have a great life. People should help. They should care about being seen, valued, loved, and understood. They should care about feeling worthwhile, needed, um, powerful, helpful, useful, critical. That's what people should feel good about. And that's what they do feel good about. So a vision is critical. Okay. Because the vision, like if your people have a vision that they believe in with their own heart, not because you told them to, but because they're like, man, I want that for me. Okay. If they have a vision that they want for themselves, guess what? They're going to want to do it. And they're going to want to do it for themselves. Now, people working for themselves, that's what, and for themselves and the betterment of the people around them and their families through their own excellence, that's what makes people great. So that's where a vision is so critical. Now, that means, you know, so if you have a vision, you can't have a vision at the top that's like, hey, here's the vision I want to, you know, and you guys go do it. No, 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 that's management. If you have a vision that you find to be important, then you have to ask yourself, why would tens of people or hundreds of people or thousands of people benefit by being part of the journey of achieving this vision. So you have to find a way that each of them will become the best version of themselves in furtherance of that. You know, um, 
you know, at Chipotle, we had, when I started there, we had 87% of our crew were Hispanic and, uh, and almost all the managers were white. Okay. And the Hispanic people didn't move up through the ranks because there wasn't a method by which to move up through the ranks. They didn't really have, uh, but they didn't have a vision. In fact, when I went and talked to, to them, when I trained in the restaurant, um, uh, I talk about this, this in the, in the book, but basically I went undercover uh, and went to a restaurant where no one knew who I was. And I did the restaurant training. And what I learned was the crew were awesome. They were incredible. These people were really brilliant, but they had no ambition to move up through the ranks because no one had told them they could. No one had made it possible and it wasn't happening. Um, and so that really bothered me. And I, th- and I thought, why be training all these people from the outside to go be the boss of these people in the restaurants? And so I thought, okay, well, let's switch. Let's completely change it. Let's get rid of this management training program, which goes out and hires white men from the outside to be the boss of Hispanic people. And instead, let's hire, uh, let's stop hiring anyone from the outside and let's go to our crew and start and start put together a system by which our crew people can move up through the ranks. And so we gave them a vision, and that vision was to become part of a team of top performers empowered to achieve high standards. They, we, they each had a vision that every single person that we hired in Chipotle was going to be a future manager or leader if they wanted to be. We needed them. And not only do we need them, but 100% of our managers were going to come from crew. And then uh, thereafter, 100% of our executives were going to come from managers. And so we had this, we built this system of upward mobility where all of our future leaders came from people, entry level, hourly employees at the restaurant. So what happened? Well, what happened was loads more people wanted to work at Chipotle. We got way more applicants for each job. The managers were choosing people uh, as, for crew positions who they thought could be future managers. And what naturally happened was, guess what? I mean, our manager pool became, instead of almost all white men, it became uh, actually, it was over 50% women. And it was, at one point, it became over 50% Hispanic, since we had a lot of Hispanics working in the restaurant. The manager pool eventually reflected the crew. And God, it was so powerful because all these people moved up through the ranks because they had a vision that they believed in. They knew the company believed in them. They knew that we wanted them to be our future leaders. They knew that we cared about them, saw them, understood them, valued them, and loved them. They, they knew that they were the cat daddies. They were important. They were the people on whom, on whose backs we were going to build the future of this organization. And they knew that they weren't only part of it, that they were critical to it. And guess what? They did it for themselves. And so they were excellent. So our restaurant operations got phenomenally better. Our throughput went through the roof. Our sales went through the roof. The company got to grow loads more restaurants, which gave loads more jobs to loads more managers, all of whom would come up from within. It was brilliant, all because we created a great vision that was understood by the people in the lowest positions of the organization, the entry-level positions. They understood the vision. They wanted it for themselves, and they knew how to achieve it. And boom, huge success. Amazing. Um, Well, I want to finish with two final things. Uh, At the end of the book, you uh, write about stepping down from Chipotle and you talk about parting ways with somebody, you know, uh, your your co-CEO, Steve. And I think the the thing that that struck me was the fact that it wasn't necessarily parting on the greatest of terms, even though you both kind of said, oh, we're not going to let this affect our friendship. But then, you know, he basically says something about what he wants to say about why you're leaving uh, to the New York Times and you actually tell him that's not okay. And then um, you conclude by saying that you guys haven't spoken since. Yeah. I mean, you know, listen, Steve's a brilliant guy and I've got nothing but love for Steve. I mean, he's really, he's an awesome guy and we had so much fun working together. You know, I think it's just, you know, at the end of a situation like that, it's, you know, it's, it's very difficult to decide to leave any job you've loved. Okay. I mean, I, I had a hard time leaving Dairy Queen. I had a hard time leaving the place where I was a mechanic. I had a hard time leaving the place 
um, where I was an auto parts salesman. I had a really hard time leaving the place where I was a janitor. I mean, because I loved those jobs and I was and I felt really good in them and valuable in them. Well, I mean, Chipotle, God, I was there almost 13 years and I uh, had the ability to meet tens of thousands of brilliant people and and uh, and we achieved so much success together as a team and it was really, really fun. And so making the decision to leave was was really, really hard. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's just, it's an emotional time. And so, um, it's, you know, it's difficult. It's just really, really hard. And I don't think there's any way that, and, and I think that, uh, you know, Steve and I were so intense, intently involved, both loving this company, both wanting it to be successful, um, both putting our heart and soul, you know, into, into, uh, Chipotle. And then, and then, uh, ultimately, you know, when it came time to leave, it's, 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 you know, we had spent so many years together so intensely that, that and, and I guess, you know, when I left, I was just sort of, I, I actually, we left on great terms. I mean, we left with a, a hug and telling each other we loved each other. Uh, and, and that was true and is true. But, you know, but then when he called, you know, a few days later and sort of, hey, can we, can we sort of spin it this way with regard to how you're leaving? That just didn't feel right to me. And so I thought, eh, you know, uh, that doesn't feel good. But that wasn't that that didn't mean we left on bad terms. That just meant that that one thing I sort of said no. And I think he felt frustrated and I felt frustrated. But I don't I'm not hanging on to that. That's not something that I'm hanging on to. And I'm sure he's yeah. hanging on to that either. I, you know, I, I just appreciate it that you, you mentioned that because I think that, you know, one of the things people don't see is that there are inevitably things that become ugly when a you know, business grows, you know, like you see the social network and you're like, okay, you know, that whole, you don't get to 500 million friends without making a few enemies along the way. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but I, but I actually, I don't know. I mean, I don't, I guess I don't agree. I, I don't think I have any enemies. I mean, Steve is certainly not my enemy. I mean, I, like I say, yeah. we're, Steve and I have shared a huge part of our lives together, incredibly successfully and had a blast, you know, I mean, you know, if I could do everything again with Steve, I'd do it again. And then I'd do it again. I'd do it again. It was great. You know, so, and I don't think I have any enemies in the world. God, I hope not. If they're out there, they, you know, I hope that they uh, forgive me. You know, <laughs> but I, I <laughs> somebody got a bad meal at Chipotle or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, but, but really, I don't think you need to leave. And I don't like that kind of attitude that we need to leave enemies in our tracks uh, or leave uh, yeah. hurt people in our tracks. I don't believe in that shit. I think that's total bullshit. I mean, I really do. And I, yeah. I, I really don't believe in it. But, you know, maybe someone will prove me wrong and say, look, hey, hey, I'm what I, you know, I, yeah, I mean, for me, it's, it's, you know, I'll tell you, like, the, to me, the, the, you know, when we've lost team members because of conflict, um, you know, not being able to see eye to eye, I still, you know, to me, those are my greatest regrets. Like, you know, I, those are the things I wish hadn't turned out the way they did. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and they, but, you know, they turn out the way they turn out for a reason. But it's really, I think it's, it's really easy just to be very grateful to the people who have come into your life, whether they gave you difficulty or whether they did something wonderful for you. I mean, either way, they're teachers. You know, you learn from them. And, so I just think that proceeding with maximum gratitude for every interaction with every person you've ever met is appropriate. And it's, you know, and I'll tell you what, uh, it, it, sometimes it involves um, forgiving, right? If somebody's done something that really hurt you, sometimes you have to forgive them. But guess who wins the most when, you know, in the, in the action of forgiving? Is it the forgiver or the forgivee? What's the forgiver? The person who forgives. Yeah, the guy who forgives or the, or the person who forgives is the one who gets the most out of forgiving. It's because now they let it go. Now they can take deep breaths. Now they can feel their heart be rich and full. Now they can be with their maximum vulnerability and allow their heart to be open to God and truth and love and the universe. I mean, that's what, that's what life's about. It's not cutting ourselves off or compartmentalizing and going, oh, yeah, that guy was an asshole or that woman was, a, you know, she never treated me right or, oh, God, that girlfriend was nasty to me. You know, it's like, let it go, man. We're all just doing the best we can. And it's, and, you know, we're all trying to love each other and love ourselves and, and, and be worthwhile and, and, and be valuable in this world. And, you know, we're doing sometimes a shitty job of it, sometimes a great job of it. 
but we're, you know, we're all doing the best we can. I'd like to think. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I have one last question for you, which yeah. is how we finish all of our interviews at the unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Access to their heart, real access to their heart, the ability to share their heart with everyone else. And if you share that with maximum openness and maximum vulnerability, everyone will see how special you are. And it doesn't matter who you are, you're special. And, and it's like, and that's just not some cute Hallmark card bullshit. What I mean is if somebody, anyone in this world, if they really get in touch with their heart and expose their heart and find it and let it be and forgive it. And I mean, I'm saying forgive their own heart for, you know, forgive themselves and forgive the moment and for, and let it go and just be, and, and really allow their heart just to be in its fullness. Um, then they're going to be a gift to the world. They're going to be gift, a gift to the people around them. They're going to be someone incredible. And, you know, and that allows you to release judgment, you know, towards others, you know, because you, when you, when you have maximum vulnerability, it doesn't come with judgment. It comes with no judgment. And I think that if we can all release judgment and allow ourselves to become the fullest version of ourselves, um, then we will be unmistakable. Incredible. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your insights and wisdom with our listeners. I've learned so much just talking with you and, and from reading your book. Uh, where can people find out more about you, your book, uh, your work and everything else that you're up to? Well, well, first of all, thank you so much. It's been really fun hanging out with you and, and chatting. And it, I just find it really fun to talk about these things. I think your question's really good. And thank you so much for reading my book. I really appreciate it. So, yeah, so as you, as you mentioned, the book is called Love is Free, Guac is Extra. Well, our website is loveisfree.com. And on that website, you can find out about the book. Uh, you can buy a book if you'd like. You can even have me inscribe it to, in, to someone or to yourself. And I'll write whatever you want me to write in it. Um, that's kind of a neat little feature that we put in there. But also on the website, it'll teach you about our docu-series, which is called Connected, A Search for Unity, which played on PBS, but now is available. I think it's on the PBS World Streaming Service. But also, um, if anyone has trouble you know, finding that, watching it, just write us on the website, loveisfree.com. You can get a hold of me that way, and you can find out what we're up to, and you can look at some excerpts from the docu-series, uh, and you can get a book and whatever. So yeah, that's, that's the best way to communicate with me. Amazing. Um, well, like I said, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us. And well, thank you. It was really fun. Time. Thanks so much. And I, Hey, you live in Boulder, so let's, uh, let's get together sometime. Yeah. I'd love to meet you in person. Absolutely. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.